Welcome to the Variety Hour, where local leaders talk Memphis. Listen to you, move your mind. I bet you come from way down south. Now don't tell me, let me guess. You from the town that I love best. Talk Memphis, I wish you would. Talk Memphis, you sound so good. Talk Memphis, high on the bluff. I swear I can't get enough. Welcome to Talk Money, and now here's your host, Jim Shoemaker. Good morning and welcome to Talk Money. Would you believe I've got some great information for you today. The Social Security Trust Fund. Now you got to remind, this comes from the OC, which is the Old Age Survivors Insurance Trust Fund. This has come information from them. It says the Social Security Trust Fund paid out $853.5 billion in 2018, more than $831 billion of the fund produced in total income. The 2018 deficit breaks a streak of 34 consecutive years from 1984 to 2017 of income exceeding cost. If you go back to 2019, the annual surplus was actually $134 billion. So here's the question. Will Social Security be able to continue to sustain the demands in the future? My guest is Kurt Sarnowski this morning, and he is an expert on Social Security. He's a frequent and popular guest. We'll ask him the question, will Social Security be able to sustain the demands in the future? And that's going to be one of those tough questions. Also with me today is Michael Powell. Many people struggle with the language of the financial industry, just understanding the language. People just get confused, and Michael is here to give us some steps to improve your financial knowledge and understanding, and he is a member of the Financial Literacy Group, and you will want to stay tuned because he will give you some very specifics on how to know more about understanding the financial language, which is important for anybody dealing with money. From our Did You Know files, have you noticed there's volatility in the market? It's up, it's down. The S&P 500 is up 15.8% year-to-date. That's at the close of last week. Now, if you remove the four best trading days for the index in 2019, you would reduce that 15.8%. It would go down to 7.2%. So volatility moves up, volatility moves down. You don't want to miss those when it moves up. This is a question that was recently posed to the members of the National Association of Business Economics. When will the U.S. enter a recession? Now, everybody would like to that answer. Here's what these guys said. Now, these are these panelists are pretty smart people. It said 20, 10% in 2019. 2020, 42%. 2021, 25%. So you're looking at over 60 70%, 75% literally say within two years we're going to be in a recession. I wonder if they really know. Are they just, you know, pulling it out of the sky? You know, something like that. Treasury Department, though, has given us some very good news. Recently published that the U.S. government ran a hundred, listen to this, $160.3 billion surplus during the month of April 2019. Did you hear what I said? $160.3 billion surplus during the month of 2019. The surplus was the difference between $535.5 billion in tax receipts. That's the largest amount collected in our nation's history. And what we paid out was $375.2 billion in outlays. 
Here's a question for so many people, and yet it's great answers to it. Are you looking for a job? As of March the 31st, there were 6.2 million people unemployed in the United States. There are 7.5 million job openings. Unemployment is the lowest level it's been in 49 years. April, 3.6%. Nine states have reported jobless rates at the end of March this year. They were lowest ever in their respective states. Not included in those nine states, but excellent numbers. Tennessee, 3.2%. Arkansas, 3.7%. And Mississippi, 5.9%. All great numbers. If you're looking for a job, you ought to be able to find it. 61% of the 600 people surveyed, these uh, the human resource managers were surveyed by Harvard University, do not review resumes of job applicants who are lacking a four-year college education. Now, here's my question. That's 61% of 600 human resource managers. I wonder if those people knew that Harvard was doing the research. I mean, think of it. If you get a phone call and you're here, oh, this is Harvard. We're going to, we want to know, do you actually, I'm not going to go there. And finally, it appears families are split on whether children should help pay for college. Well, this was not the case in my home. Barnes & Noble Research recently came up with a study that says and finished up in March of 2019. They interviewed 5,460 and found out, listen, 49% said yes, children should pay for college, and 51 said nope, the kids should get a free ride. That did not happen in the Shoemaker family, I can tell you. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. To divine today's program on podcast or earlier programs, go to the iTunes store and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Coming up, Social Security. Will it be here when you need it? Kurt Zarnowski. The second half of the hour, Michael Powell. Financial literacy, some steps to improve your financial expertise, your financial knowledge. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to The Voice, KWAM 990 and FM 107.9. This is Talk Money. Podcasts of Talk Money are available in the iTunes store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with more Talk Money after this. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Security and Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Security and Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Welcome back. My guest today, well, from Boston, Massachusetts, the home of the New England Patriots, the Boston Red Sox, but also known for its favorite son and our guest today, Mr. Kurt Zarnowski of Zarnowski Consulting. Welcome to the program, sir. Good morning, Jim. Good to be back. Hope everybody's doing well down there. Yeah, we're doing great. We're just glad to have you, man. We're um, The question, here's something that's just come up, and I want to read it to you. And, you know, we answer this question every time, Kurt. The Social Security Trust Fund paid out $853.5 billion in 2018, more than $831 billion the fund produced in total income. This deficit breaks a 34 consecutive years of, of income exceeding cost. So here's the question, and everybody reads it, everybody sends it to us, and they said, will Social Security be able to sustain the demands in the future? Well, you know, every time I get asked this question, I answer by starting the same way. 
paraphrasing Mark Twain, who once said, reports of my demise are greatly exaggerated. I think reports of Social Security's demise are greatly exaggerated as well. You know, each year, Social Security's trustees issue a report on the financial health of the system. And what you're quoting from is the 2019 report came out last month. Right. And does try in its um, report, try and project not only current health of the system, but 75 years into the future. And what basically the report says is, as currently constituted, assuming no changes whatsoever made by Congress, no increase in taxes, no cuts in benefits, no changes whatsoever, they do project Social Security will have enough money to cover 100% of the benefits through the year 2035. But beginning at that point, it is thought that Social Security won't have enough money to cover all of the benefits that have been promised, again, absent some type of change to the program. And to me, the key point here is, particularly when I talk to younger folks, they falsely think that, oh, my God, there's not going to be anything there whatsoever. The important thing to remind listeners, Jim, is Social Security's primary source of income payroll tax dollars collected from employers, employees, and people who are self-employed. So absent a complete and total collapse of the United States economy so that nobody anywhere is working, Social Security is always going to have a revenue stream of some sort. The issue is, looking down the road, is that revenue stream thought to be sufficient to cover 100% of the benefits that have been promised? And according to trustees' report, It will be through 2035, but beginning at that point, it won't be. But the report tries to point out that that anticipated revenue stream is thought to be enough to cover 80% of the benefits that have been promised. So the issue confronting Congress and the American public about the future of the Social Security program is not how you close a 100% funding gap by tomorrow. No, it's how over the course of the next 15 years or so, you come up with some changes to the program that close, in essence, a 20% funding gap. And Social Security, you know, it's money coming in, it's money going out. So the issue confronting the American public and Congress, it's really no different than somebody's own situation at home. If at the end of the month, you don't have enough money to cover all of your bills, you either have to bring more money in or pay a little bit less money out or maybe do some of each. And if you think about that way in terms of Social Security, if you close that 20% gap simply by bringing more money in, who are you going to impact? Well, younger folks, workers, employers. You close the gap simply by cutting benefits, who are you going to impact? Well, old folks like me, Jim. So I think in the end, when Congress does get around to dealing with the issue, which they should be doing sooner rather than later, you will see a blend, if you will, some increases on the income side, some slowdowns on the outflow side. But I just think it's really important to put some context on this. You're not talking about a program that has no money tomorrow. It's a program that has been building up reserves basically since 1983, recognizing that with the retirement of the baby boom generation, increasing life expectancy, there were anticipated strains on the system. So that, you know, as you point out, 34 years in a row, Social Security had been taking in more money than it needed to pay out in benefits, accumulating those assets in the Social Security Trust Fund with the anticipated need for that money. And and so it is going to be used and, and, and come into play. But again, so many things to think about, but don't fall into the trap of thinking about Social Security having no money whatsoever. 
In my view, it's a program that faces some challenges, which are largely demographically driven, increased life expectancy, the fact that fewer babies are being born, then it's not a program in crisis, though. That's a good That's a way to put it. I, I always appreciate you saying that, but I knew the April data came out, and I knew a lot of people were concerned. You know, it seemed like we hear it, and it, it they, we try to create this urgency, and really what you're saying to us, it's a fixable, or if it's not fixable, it's least adjustable, so that you can pretty much bank that, as you said, 80% of what's expected will be there for someone who's 35 years of age today. Is that, is at, that what you you're know, saying? At, at least. That's, that's the anticipated. You know, and to me, in many ways, Social Security's biggest problem is that it doesn't face an immediate crisis because it is going to be uh, up to Congress to legislate the changes. And Congress these days lurches basically from crisis to crisis. And because there is no immediate crisis in terms of paying benefits next month or the month after or whatever, it's very easy for them to just uh, you know, the old expression, kick the can down the road and, yeah. and, and let somebody else deal with it. Because, you know, frankly, there is no magic bullet in this. There's no change that isn't going to adversely impact someone somehow, because if there were a magic bullet, it certainly would have been enacted by now. Yeah. But it's going to be a question of finally, you know, biting the bullet, dealing with the issue. And uh, the sooner they deal with it, the earlier the changes are announced so that younger folks in particular know what they're going to be dealing with down the road, the, the better it is for the future of the program. Well, now, again, it's always good to hear you say that, and it's comforting to know that coming from you, and if you just tuned in, our guest is Kurt Zornowski with President and Founder of Zornowski Consulting. He is the expert that we bring in on a regular basis to talk about the questions that you ask us about Social Security. Kurt, the question that is this has just recently come in from a lady and again, it was one I thought was so important because it's one that you've answered before, but she takes it a little different. And I think it's great. She said she's been married over 10 years, recently divorced. She knows that she will be eligible for benefits from her former spouse. But what does she have to do? That was her question. What do I have to do to make sure I can collect when it's time for me to collect? Do I have to have his Social Security number? Do I have to have his permission to get the benefits that I'm entitled to for 22 years of marriage? Yeah, so we'll deal with the last uh, issue first. No, she doesn't need to get his permission. You know, um, it, Her right to benefits as a divorced spouse are as a matter of law, and uh, he can't say, no, 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 you can't have the money. So I, it, best advice is for her at this point, um, to A, understand the requirements for divorce spousal benefits, which we'll talk about, and then go to Social Security at this point, ask for a benefit estimate so she'll have a number in mind and be able to use that in planning for her financial future. So what are the requirements for divorce spousal benefits? Well, basically, the marriage needs to have lasted at least 10 years prior to the divorce, for her to be able to collect as a divorced spouse based on his work record, she cannot be married. He can have remarried without impacting her ability to collect on him, but she cannot be married. Thirdly, she has to be at least age 62, earliest age a divorced spouse can collect, no different than regular spousal benefits. Now, here's the thing. If a marriage is intact, and I think we talked about this on previous shows, 
if the marriage were intact, she couldn't collect anything off of him unless he was actually collecting himself. But in cases of divorce, what the law says is, as long as they're both 62 years of age or older, and the divorce was finalized at least two years ago, she can begin to collect even if he has not yet started to collect. Again, both have to be at least 62, divorce finalized at least two years ago. She can collect off of him even if he has not yet started to collect. So with those condition, conditions being met, what's she entitled to receive? Well, basically, just as if the marriage were intact as a spouse, she'll be eligible to receive 50% of his full retirement age amount or her own benefit, whichever one is higher, but not both at once. And Social Security will always pay her her own retirement benefit first, assuming she's worked and paid in the system for at least 10 years, and then we'll compare her own full retirement payment amount with 50% of his. And if hers is less than 50% of his, she'll be due that additional money as a divorced spouse. But if her own work record has generated a benefit that exceeds 50% of his, well, that's all she collects on. And she won't be eligible to receive anything as a divorced spouse. So it's a comparison between her own full retirement age amount and 50% of his. The other thing to keep in mind, as we talked about on other shows too, is how working impacts somebody's ability to collect, whether it's a retirement benefit, a spousal benefit, a divorce spousal benefit, or a, a survivor benefit. You know, while she is under her full retirement age, whatever it might be based on her year of birth, if she is still working, she needs to understand there's an earnings limitation in place that impacts her ability to collect. So 2019, you're allowed to make up to $17,640 without any loss in benefits. But if she's still working, making well above that, even though she may be old enough, the marriage may have lasted long enough, she may be unmarried, that earnings limitation comes into play and impacts her ability to collect. But once she has reached her full retirement age, there's no longer any earnings limitation in place, and she can collect at that point, even if she's still working and making a million dollars a year. Let me ask this. That's a, that's a great way you summarized it. It was perfect. But she literally was fearful. She says, I don't have his Social Security number. That's fine. That won't be, that won't be an impediment, basically. If she can provide Social Security with some basic identifying information on him, okay. name, obviously, date of birth, um, mother's maiden name, if you have it, right. father's name, you know, the type of information that somebody is asked to provide when they apply right. for a Social Security number. And armed with that identifying information, Social Security can track down his Social Security record. Now, the thing is, this divorce spousal payment is absolutely protected under Privacy Act. And Social Security, if she starts to collect, Social Security is not going to tell him that she's collecting because she's, and any divorced spouse, treated absolutely independently of anyone else, has no impact on anything he might be doing. So they're not going to tell him that she's collecting, nor when she goes to get a benefit estimate, are they going to reveal any information, personal information about him? where he is or whether he's collecting or anything like that. They'll provide her with a dollar figure number that she can use for planning purposes. Um, but, 
you know, they're not going to be revealing any other personally identifiable information to the other party because um, it's, it's, it's protected. All right. That, you, you've given us tremendous information about, you always talk about retirement, and, and that's, been, that's been kind of the, well, I guess, the, the main subject because so many people look at Social Security at retirement. Now you've kind of answered the question for the divorced spouse. But here's the next question that I think— Ooh, we, you are loaded with them today. Well, we are, you know, and we're trying to get this one in before we take a break. Disability— the person is disabled, cannot work, but is capable. I mean, and they've been denied is what the question is. What did they do wrong? Now, again, you, I'm not going to, I can't give you specifics on this, but I'm trying to get how would you file for Social Security for the disability payment? They cannot work. Their doctors have said you can't do this, but they're not laying in a bed and they're not paraplegic and they're not, you know, dying tomorrow. They're functioning, but not capable of holding down today an employment of uh, sustainability. They can't, sure. they can't sustain themselves. Yeah, and, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Social Security Disability Benefit Program. And it's important to understand, for Social Security benefit purposes, what the definition of disability is. And for Social Security Disability Insurance Program, for people to qualify for benefits, they must have a medically determinable condition which is so severe that it prevents them from working and engaging in the term of the statute is substantial gainful activity. It's expected to keep them out of work for at least a year or expected to result in death. So the number of different factors in the definition, number one, it's severe disability, total disability, complete inability to work. Unlike, say, with the Veterans Administration, where you can be a judge 10 or 15 percent disabled and receive some type of cash payment. No. With Social Security disability, complete inability to work at a substantial earnings level, which these days, 2019, defined as if you're making more than $1,080 per month, you're considered as working at a substantial earnings level. All right. It's long-term disability, you know, and it's complete inability to work at the type of job you have the training, age, education to be able to handle. All right, let me take a break. And when we come back, I want you to help me. We're going to summarize it because I think this person is trying to figure out they feel like they should be getting it. Maybe mm-hmm. you can kind of give us the steps that a person needs sure. to go through to do that. If you just tuned in, my guest today, Kurt Zornowski, president and founder of Zornowski Consulting. He is our frequent guest that answers our questions about Social Security. We've dealt with, will Social Security be around? He says, yes, it may be adjusted, but it will be. We've talked about if you're a divorced spouse, how do you file? We're talking about filing for disability when we come back. Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. This is Talk Money. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. Neither Shoemaker Financial nor Security and Financial Services are affiliated with Kurt Zarnowski or Zarnowski Consulting. The views and opinions expressed are those of Kurt Zarnowski only and have not been presented on behalf of or endorsed by Security and Financial Services, Inc. or Shoemaker Financial. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we're talking with Kurt Zornowski, the president and founder of Zornowski Consulting. Coming up in just a few minutes, Michael Powell will be talking about financial literacy, steps to improve 
your knowledge about just basics of money, starting with that young person in college or, you know, working through to your that first job. That's what Michael's going to be discussing. But right now we're talking about filing for disability and the problems. The question is the person feels feels like they were denied. They were denied and it feels like they shouldn't have been denied. And Kurt, I think, you know, what happens to us is. You know, we, we, we're intimidated. Uh, you know, like this guy, as, we, as he sent us in the question and talked about it, the whole idea was he was really felt intimidated and didn't know what to do. So give us some insight on what you would recommend this individual to do. Sure. I'll do that in just a second. I just want to correct something. I said substantial work for Social Security this year defined as 1080 per month. No, it's $1,220 per month or more. So in terms of Any decision that somebody gets from Social Security, they have appeal rights if they don't agree with the decision, including this gentleman or anyone who applies for disability benefits and gets a denial. There's basically a five-step appeal process that can be pursued by the individual. With each of these steps after a denial, you have 60 days in which to appeal the prior decision. So he gets denial decision saying, no, your condition doesn't qualify for Social Security disability. Best advice I give to anyone and everyone is, if you consider and believe yourself to be disabled, appeal the decision. The first step in the appeals process is to file what is called a request for reconsideration. With the initial decision and this request for reconsideration, they are, in essence, by design, paper reviews, meaning requesting reconsideration simply means that the disability folder, the claim that had previously been adjudicated, will be reviewed by somebody different. That come back with a denial. Then you have another step in the appeals process, which is to request a hearing before an administrative law judge. This is the first opportunity somebody has to appear face-to-face with the decision-maker. Again, you've got a 60-day period from the time you get that reconsideration denial letter, if you do, to file a request for hearing. The hearing request goes in. Again, you have the opportunity to appear face-to-face. It's important to remind folks, it's not an adversarial process designed to be more like fact-finding. There's not a Social Security lawyer there representing the agency and trying to say, no, you should have been denied or whatever. The administrative law judge is there to review the information and talk to the person and and, and get more information. If the administrative law judge hearing comes back as a denial, person then has an additional step. It's to request a review before the Social Security Administration's appeals council. And this is really like an appellate court where they're going to really review matters of law as opposed to the facts in the case. And then if the appeals council comes back, again, denying the individual, they have the right to file a suit in federal district court. So multi-step appeals process, it's there, and I encourage people to take advantage of it. If they believe they're disabled and should be receiving benefits, then uh, if in doubt, fill it out. Fill out that appeal 
form and, and uh, pursue the, the rights that are given to you under the law. Well, that's that's a when in doubt, fill it out. That I like that 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 spells it out. Just just if you feel you should have gotten something as a result of being disabled, take the steps, walk you through that, and that's great. Kurt, thanks so much for giving us that. I think mean, I think that helps us understand. Don't be intimidated is really what you're saying. Just absolutely walk. not. I like what you said that it's um it's a discovery. It's not somebody trying to you know beat you up or, you know, being in a court of law at the first repeal. You're just trying to find out and you get a chance to really start that process. Thanks so much for explaining that to us. Uh, you know, Tom, this flies by. We don't have enough time. So we'll have him back as we always do. Kurt, Kurt Zernowski, president and founder of Zernowski Consultants. Thank you so much. Have a great week, sir. I appreciate you so much. And thanks for being a part of today's program. All right, Jim. Take care. Yes, sir. Well, that's Kurt Zernowski. Of course, he always does a great job, but in the studio with me is Michael Powell. Now, that's not a but. Kurt does a great job. But Michael Powell is here, and I'm looking at him and talking to him about steps to improve financial literacy. Now, the National Endowment of Financial Education, this is what Michael's given to me, says one in five U.S. teenage students lack basic financial literacy skills. Michael, welcome to the program, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Always good to be here. You know, it's amazing. We're ranked seventh, seventh in the world as far as out of 15 countries. These are in an international study that says our 15-year-olds' aptitude and understanding essential financial concepts and products and tasks, we're lacking and uh, not doing a very good job. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that? Honestly, I don't know what I think it's been an issue just in years past. And I think now with the technology we have and the different things we can do with our finances, I think it's more important than ever for us to improve that. Um, I don't know particularly why it's been number seven. I mean, there's a lot of good countries out there that do all this different stuff. Maybe there's more moving parts here in other countries that are above us, but there's more people in other countries, too. Yeah, so, right. So what I think it's a blend of things. I thought a lot of reasons for it, but you've got some steps that you want to give us that I think are so critical to help. And so we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Michael, you need to just be very sensitive to what he's going to be giving us. These are steps to improve not only your financial literacy, but if you happen to have that teenager or college student, you'll want to take notes because they're going to be very specific about what will help you. Mike's part of our financial literacy group and does a great job of teaching and does a, uh, constantly teaching people about what to do when it comes to financial literacy. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to Talk Money. If you have questions you'd like to have answered on the program, email them to talkmoney at shoemakerfinancial.com. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. The Liberty Bowl Stadium has been the home to many wonderful stories. When the Memphis Memorial Stadium was built in 1965, it was dedicated to Memphians who had served in the two world wars and in Korea. Its purpose was to relocate the Liberty Bowl from Atlantic City to Memphis. The stadium was renamed Liberty Bowl Memorial Stadium nine years later. In 1983, the field was named Rex Dockery Field after a Memphis football coach who was killed in a plane crash just two weeks before Christmas. Since the 70s, the stadium has hosted numerous professional football teams, along with a few soccer teams. 
During the 90s, the stadium hosted the Memphis Mad Dogs, who were part of the Canadian Football League. Although there were some difficulty adapting the stadium to Canadian football rules, that one season in 1995 was a high point in the stadium's history, matched by the exhibition baseball game there between the Braves and the Brewers in 1975. This has been another Mid-South History Moment, brought to you by Shoemaker Financial. Jim Shoemaker and Michael Powell are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Securian Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer, member FNIRA, SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information is not investment advice or a recommendation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, when was the first time that you were financially responsible for your money? Were you in the sixth grade, seventh grade, because you had a part-time job? You were cutting grass, as I was doing, and trying to, you know, repair lawnmowers and, and push lawnmowers all over the city, trying to make sure I could, you know, back then it was okay. Well, were you, did you get that first job out of college and you became financially responsible? Well, We have found out that one in five U.S. teenagers lack basic financial literacy skills. And my guest is Michael Powell. And Michael's here to give us steps to improve your financial literacy. Now, Michael, help us start with the first one that you would recommend for any family if they've got that teenager or that college student or if they're just starting out or they're 55 years old. What would you recommend as the first step to improving financial literacy? My first step would tell you to be is to educate yourself by taking some sort of course, whether it's online or a community college or anywhere else. I mean, we live in a day and age where we can edu- educate ourselves with the palm of our hand. In our pajamas. Yes. I mean, <laughs> in your on your bedside, whatever you want. But like Rosetta Stone and learning your languages, I think it's very important for us to educate ourselves on the language of finance, too, because there's a lot of jargon out there you hear on, on the radio TV, social media, and, you know, today with YouTube, um, all these different resources out there that are free, you just got to type in the web address. I feel like today is the better time than ever just to go online and spend five to 10 minutes a day or maybe a week of just learning something new with finance. That's a good point. Now, I do know that our language in the financial industry is sometimes, I mean, I can tell when people are in the office, you're talking to them, and it's like I'm speaking Greek and they're listening in Latin, mm-hmm. and it's you know it's not communicating. And I, I think that just having the ability to have a course like that. I know you teach and you teach um, around the city a lot, and, and you and a couple of the guys in the office run this financial literacy group. And I mean, the point is, when you're teaching, do you feel like people uh, when you're looking at them and they're you're talking to them? I'm sure there's those that in the class that you're thinking, I know he's not understanding me or she's not understanding me. What do you try to help them do at that point? I try to break it down as much as possible (laughs) in layman's terms. But no, you're right. There are some particular segments of different basic finance presentations I'll give to people and they'll look at me like I am speaking Chinese. But at the end of the day, it's up to them to really dive in and figure out if that, you know, to understand it more. I mean, they could stop me in the middle of the presentation and say, hey, I don't understand a word you're saying. But, you know, at the end of the day, I can 
preach the gospel or, you know, tell whatever I can, but it also is on that other person to go back and look at a little right, bit more. So that think, goes back to that educating yourself. I think you said educate yourself, and that really is saying take some of your the responsibility yourself. Sure. So if a mom or dad's listening and they've got that teenage son, mom, dad, take some of that responsibility, but that son or daughter has got to take some responsibility. They've got to want to know how to balance a checkbook. I can remember having to teach some people years ago the fundamentals of balancing a checkbook. Now, we don't do it with paper anymore. It's all done automatically. But how do you check it out? How do you see if there's been a mistake? Believe it or not, banks do make mistakes. Credit card companies do make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So that's part of that financial literacy, knowing what to look for when it comes to mistakes. Absolutely. What's the second thing that you would recommend for people to do? Now, this is more, not necessarily education, but I feel like it's more self-awareness, but listing out your expenses, mm. monthly expenses. I understand that. Tracking them. You don't have to actually write them down, but if you have some sort of system to track your expenses on a monthly basis of what you're spending, I think it's a big eye-opener. And it really helps people understand the concept of budgeting, figuring out what's coming in every month from my paycheck outside of my taxes and my insurances and all that. And what else am I spending my money on? If I got things left over, if I see a deficit, how am I supposed to address that? And really, when I write down my expenses, I mean, you could look at it from a million different ways, but really it's, I spent how much this month? I mean, it could be a very eye-opening thing. And a lot of people don't even know how much they're spending on a monthly basis because everything's on auto draft now. On a draft or it's all on a card. You don't you don't write. You don't use no. cash anymore. That's um, I was recently out of the country and in, in a particular country that um, I found out that they don't like retail people did not like restaurants and retail didn't like the use of a card. They liked cash. That was their philosophy. And it's amazing because we're completely the opposite. It's almost mm -hmm. like, don't give me cash, you know, just do it with a card. It's so much faster. And and I, and I think maybe we've removed the feel of money. When I used to teach a lot uh, as far as biblical counseling, when it came to teaching people how to manage money, that was one of the things, just, just learning to touch and feel money. Mm -hmm. So when you're saying listing out your expenses, you're exactly right. It does have a enormous self-awareness. Right. Of, wow, I didn't realize I spent this much money at Walmart or this much money at this whatever and doing things. Restaurants, that that quick out, you know, dinner, let's let me pick it up and take it home. Absolutely. Those are big deals. All right. So take an online course. Be be aware. I get it. Number two, write all your expenses down you know, be be sensitive to what you're spending your money with. Mm -hmm. What's number three? Number three would be understanding your credit score and how it works, because that's a very important thing that that's very undermined as well. The earlier you understand it, the better, especially using debt in an efficient way. If you're wanting to become an entrepreneur, it's difficult to do that or start a business if you don't have good credit or if you don't even have credit history. I know a lot, even for me personally, when I got out of college, I had zero credit history. I didn't have a credit card. I never, you know, was on a utility bill or anything like that. And I wanted to go buy a car, but they wouldn't even talk to me unless I had some sort of credit behind that. And um, I know we've talked about how your credit score is, what that, you know, how that is calculated. And it could be very confusing if you're just look because a long time ago, I didn't even know what 700 meant. I was like, are you supposed to get to a thousand? Yeah, or is, you know, is, is that a good, is it like, go like, a good is it like golf? Is it the lower the better? Be a good batting average, but I don't think that's a good credit score. I mean, that's another thing. So if you learn how to 
develop a good credit score if you don't have a good credit score now you need to understand how you could get yourself back up to that because you can't really do a lot of things today without financing especially if you're going to buy a house or start a business so michael are you saying manage your credit score not just be aware of it but manage it sure yeah i mean you want to understand if whether you're in a bad situation from a credit standpoint or in a good one Understand how you got there and make sure that you repeat that habit to make sure it's still good. Well, that's important. Now, we've talked about taking an online course, listing out your expenses, be, you know, that self-awareness of what you're doing and, and developing good habits. That's important. Then managing a credit score, which I think that is very fundamental for mm-hmm. a lot of people. And you're right. If you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to do something outside, that's a way to do it. Knowing knowing how much your credit moving, and you said when you got out of college you didn't have it, so you have to start it and you have to create it. That's great. So when we come back, you've got a couple more that are very fundamental and yet critical to financial literacy. Stay with us. I'm Jim Shoemaker. You're listening to Talk Money. Podcasts for Talk Money are available for iOS mobile devices in the iTunes Store. Just search Shoemaker Financial. We'll be right back with Talk Money after this. The S&P is an unmanaged index of 500 large cap stocks. Investors cannot invest in an index. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments will fluctuate and when redeemed may be worth more or less than when originally invested. Financial advisors do not provide specific tax or legal advice, and this information should not be considered as such. You should always consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your own specific tax or legal situation. And now back to Talk Money with your host, Jim Shoemaker. Well, we started the segment, this segment, of talking about the fact that one in five U.S. teenage students lack basic financial literacy skills. My guest, Michael Powell, we're talking about steps for improving your financial literacy or teaching someone else. If you happen to be a mom or dad and you've got teenage students, you can't expect it to just by osmosis. They're not going to, they can't walk by and it's not like it's going to come through their phone and they're going to get it. They've got to be challenged and they've got to take some responsibility. Michael's talked about taking an online course. Maybe mom, dad, take a Saturday morning and Sit down with the kids and everybody watch this together and and move through the process of teaching and giving them some insight from your past experiences, your what you know and what you know not to do, and uh, make it a part of a conversation. It's not going to happen unless somebody takes the action. Second thing he said is list out your expenses. Know where you're spending the money. Third manage your credit score. Now, that's not what the teenager is going to be doing. But as you step into married life or step into a career, Michael talked about the fact that he didn't have a credit score. I actually didn't have a credit score when I came out of college and out of the military. Uh, I tried to buy a dining room suit and the guy looked at me cross-eyed and said, you're kidding. You don't, you can't afford it. You don't have a credit score. I remember those statements, same mm-hmm. thing, Michael. And then here's the next one, Michael, you say is very critical, very important when it comes to improving your financial literacy. Start saving. Just start, <clears throat> excuse me, start saving in general. I mean, the biggest impact you'll see over your course of your career if you do save is the power of compounding interest Mm. it's one of the interesting wonders of the world that's very underrated and then people that have saved in the past know this and they try to you know ingrain this in people especially in the younger generations of putting money away for the side for your future whether it's six months 12 months five years or even 35 years retirement is 
getting more confusing, as we already know, with talking to Kurt this morning about Social Security. Is that going to be something that we need to know more about? But also with saving, how does that, you know, complement us? Do you think when you say saving, you're talking about pay yourself first? Yes. Right? Treat so- yourself like a bill. If I get paid, I see my taxes and everything out of my paycheck go. The next thing I'm doing is putting money aside for me long term. All right. And then now, I'm spending my bills and doing everything okay, else. Okay, so then you've got to. So is there a percentage that you recommend? I mean, is it 1% or just start? Or do you recommend. A I think a start is as much as possible. You know, get yourself at a higher level, but then bring it down if necessary. Like for, for new graduates, I would encourage you to spend that first six months of graduation after, I mean, graduation is today, basically. Right, right, yeah. So your first six months out really should be building a good foundation from an emergency fund standpoint. Mm, Don't start investing or put money in stocks and all this other stuff, but really just get the understanding down of when you get a paycheck, put it in a savings account, put it somewhere where you can't touch it unless you really need it, but slowly doing that, even if it's $50 a month or $50 a paycheck, a little is better than nothing, nothing, as we know. Building the habits, what you're talking yes, about. Yes, you got to build the habits. All right, you're saying, and I think you said this, do this before you start investing. Yes, because one thing is for sure, we all know our time horizons are totally different with savings and investing, but we all know we need something for yesterday if something bad happened, mm. or today. Those type of things. So the savings really is saving, being very systematic, pay yourself first, be systematic about it, and make that part of that emergency fund. Right, because as you progress, it's just like working out or exercising. You start out with a little bit. You may do one mile a week, and then you may upgrade two. It's the same thing with saving. You may do 50 a month, and then you go up to 100. And you just slowly give yourself a raise and bring yourself up with more money saving on a monthly basis. Michael, that's so powerful because it's a habit, and it is, you're talking about getting started early with this habit. Yes. What's another step to financial literacy that you would recommend, and we just have a few minutes left, to recommend for people that are beginning to develop in their careers, they're wanting to learn about money, or maybe they're 50 years old and they haven't been disciplined, as you're talking about starting savings, what would you say the next step would be? Speak with someone you trust. Talk with a trusted mentor. I think that's very underrated today, but this is, I mean, this could be done with any aspect of life, even without being financially related, but bouncing ideas and thoughts off someone that you trust, a good peer is always good just to hear their opinion because you've got a little bit more life experience than me, Jim, you know, just a little bit. Careful, careful. But when I talk to my parents or uncle or whoever it is that I, you know, really trust, they've been through some experiences. And I think a lot of experiences we can learn, or a lot of things we can learn is just based off experience. But I know there's some people in my life that wouldn't want me to make a mistake. So I'll talk to them first before I do anything. Well, I think what you're saying is there's so much information out there. It's so confusing. So get someone that's going to teach you. Yeah. I mean, don't always rely on the internet, but 
always talk to somebody else before. Well, thank you, Michael, so much. I appreciate financial literacy. Pick this up on the iPod and listen to it again. We appreciate that, and thank you so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks. We want to say thank you to my guest again, Michael. Appreciate it. If you'd like to talk to Michael, you can call him at 757-5757. We hope you've enjoyed today's program, and always we thank you for listening. If you have questions for Talk Money, send them to Talk Money at Shoemaker Financial. To find today's program or on podcast or past programs, go to the iTunes store and search for Shoemaker Financial. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Remember, it's not about the plan. It's about the results. I'm Jim Shoemaker. Thanks for listening. This is Talk Money. Talk Money is produced by Greg Ratliff. Guest and content coordination, Francis Fortner. Production assistant, Eleanor Moskovitz. Compliance officer, Tommy Armstrong. Mid-South History Moment, Rebecca Brazier and Drew Johnson. We'll see you next week on Talk Money. Jim Shoemaker and Michael Powell are registered representatives and investment advisor representatives of Security and Financial Services, Inc., securities dealer. Member FNIRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Shoemaker Financial is independently owned and operated.